0: Welcome to Episode 6: Clinical Best Practice: What Really Matters in Helping Clients Heal by Elizabeth e. Reyes, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist from Clearly Clinical. Learn, Grow, Shine. I have the pleasure of being your presenter for this lecture. My name is Elizabeth Irias, and I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist with specializations in utilization review, quality assurance, and clinical management. I have the pleasure of working with clinical teams across the country as a consultant and trainer in helping them improve their clinical documentation practices, their utilization review outcomes, and their overall quality of care. I also operate a private practice in Westlake Village, California where I provide adolescent and young adult therapy, family therapy, and also addictive disorder treatment. I also specialize with LGBT. This lecture focuses on clinical best practice, what really matters in helping clients heal. In this lecture, we'll explore some different definitions for the term best practice, and also the application of that idea to helping our clients recover from their behavioral health or substance use disorders through treatment planning strategies and methods. We'll also discuss some of the research that can impact how we take care of our clients and how we work alongside them in order to be really flexible and responsive providers. And we'll also explore some strategies that can be pretty easily implemented with any number of different methodologies to support client recovery. We'll bring this all together as an opportunity to explore how we can become the most effective providers. I want to start by sharing how I see it. In the United States, we have a pretty severe access issue with behavioral health care. There's also often a stigma associated with behavioral health care, as well as limitations associated with the finances. For all of these reasons, it's really up to us as providers to make sure that we're delivering the most effective care that we can be to the clients that we see in our offices. In order for us to be flexible and responsive counselors and therapists, we really need to pay attention to what's changing in the industry and what the research is telling us. Recently, the research has been indicating that there are small changes that we can make in our clinical practices that can really improve the quality of treatment for our clients, and also the outcome. I tell clients that my job is basically to work myself out of a job. My goal is to help them achieve their goals as efficiently and effectively as I can. And my hope from today's lecture is that you'll learn some strategies that will help you implement different ways of being with your clients and different ways of asking for feedback and responding to feedback so that we can help them achieve a desirable outcome. I personally feel really honored to do the work that I do, and I want to make sure as a provider that I'm doing my very best. I often call upon the medical model as a guiding light. When I think about what my doctors are hopefully doing as a care for me and for my family members, my expectation is that they're integrating the most recent research to support their treatment strategies. I hope that they're going to conferences. I hope that they're reading studies and reading books, talking to their colleagues about what works. And I hope that they're actually integrating those strategies to make sure that they're giving me or my family the best care that they can. And I think we have the same obligation as behavioral health providers. If there's something out there that could be changing, influencing and improving the work that we're doing, then my goodness, I want to know what it is and I want to start doing it. In today's lecture, we're really going to be looking at some of this research and also helping find ways that you can actually implement it. Because sometimes it's easy for us to learn about something, but it seems so lofty or so difficult to implement that we might move forward doing things the way that we used to instead of trying a new way of being. With a medical model, when I look at the world this way and I look at my treatment this way, it allows me to be more accountable when I am strategic in my treatment planning, and when I hold myself to the expectations of the field and of my clients, then I think I become much more responsive and much more effective in my position. In this field, we often throw around the term best practice, and I want to start by taking a quick look at what that even really means. According to businessdictionary.com, Best practice is a method or technique that has consistently shown results superior to those achieved with other means, and that is used as a benchmark. There are so many different models of drug counseling and psychotherapy out there, so many different ways that we can take care of our clients. And best practice would really dictate that we're using the most effective means in order to do that. So for example, there were times in medicine when bloodletting was commonly used, But in truth, there was a certain time where that was no longer best practice because the research indicated that something else would be more effective for patients. So in psychotherapy, goodness knows there have been many of things that have been done over the years that have since been shown to be largely ineffective. Now we have such brilliant research coming out from different agencies and providers that helps us guide what we are doing as providers and helps us really adhere to best practice. To me, best practice is making sure that I'm doing everything I can to influence positive outcomes for my clients, and that I'm the most effective psychotherapist that I can be in the room with that particular client when I'm flexible and responsive to their needs. I want to take some time looking at different best practice guidelines coming out of various third-party payer companies, as well as accreditation agencies. I think it's important to share these because these guidelines have come out of a whole lot of research and regardless of how you feel about insurance companies or their practices these level of care guidelines are really illustrative of best practice in a lot of ways and the implementation of these plans That's up to us as providers. So I want to look at a couple of different insurance company level of care guidelines and share them with you so that you can see how they've integrated best practice into their expectation for their providers. So here's looking at Anthem's substance abuse outpatient treatment level of care guidelines. They require an individual treatment plan, which includes identification of recovery goals, Issues such as mental preoccupation with alcohol or drug use, cravings, peer pressure, lifestyle, consequences of use, and attitudinal changes are addressed. Development of a relapse prevention plan and a sober support system, as well as monitoring of attendance at community-based recovery programs, the utilization of educational materials like books or videos, drug screens as clinically appropriate, which may require coordination with a physician, and the development of a discharge and aftercare plan, as well as a referral to psychiatric services for a dual diagnosis as needed. So Anthem for substance abuse outpatient treatment tells us very clearly that we need to have recovery goals, we need to address a number of different issues, we need to have a relapse prevention plan, and we also integrate educational materials and psychiatric support. That, to them, is best practice with regard to treatment planning. Let's take a look at what Anthem says about psychiatric outpatient treatment, and this includes treatment that's provided by a psychotherapist or psychologist. So in order to satisfy their guidelines, all must be present. Treatment goals target resolution of specific symptoms or stabilization of mood and or behavior consistent with the DSM or ICD diagnoses listed, and they also target specific domains of functional impairment. Medication is being used for conditions where indicated, and if not, documentation of the reason and treatment interventions addressing the omission of this treatment. If substance abuse or dependence is a diagnosis or indicated to be present, a substance use evaluation has been performed, and community natural supports and resources are identified and utilized, or skills to develop community and natural supports is a treatment goal, including school or work-based interventions self-care or diagnosis-specific support groups, spiritual or religious and community recreational activities. There's coordination of care with other clinicians providing care to the covered individual or family members, including psychiat- psychiatrist, therapist, and primary care provider documentation. And for children and adolescents, family participation in treatment or family therapy is documented unless contraindicated with documentation of the reason, And treatment is not duplicative of services being provided by another clinician for the same reasons or diagnoses. So to quickly wrap up that big paragraph about Anthem's Psychiatric Outpatient Treatment Guidelines, basically, they're telling us that they want us to have a really comprehensive treatment plan. They want us to cover community and natural supports. They want us to involve other providers in the creation of the treatment plan and how we're taking care of this person. Uh, they want us to help them develop different skills to resolve their functional impairments. So that's Anthem. Let's take a look at Cigna. So these are the Cigna medical necessity criteria for intensive outpatient mental health treatment for adults. They require an individualized treatment plan that's completed within 24 hours of admission. And this plan includes a clear focus on the issues leading to the admission and on the symptoms which need to be improved in order to allow treatment to continue at a less restrictive level of care. They require... Uh, If this is a readmission, there's clarity on what will be done differently during this admission that will likely lead to improvement that has not otherwise been achieved. They require a multidisciplinary assessment of mental health issues, substance use, medical illnesses, personality traits, social supports, education, and living situation. And all medical and psychiatric evaluations are in consideration of the possibility of comorbid conditions. And that the treatment plan results in interventions that utilize medication management, social work involvement, individual, group, marital, and family therapies as appropriate, and that these treatment goals are designed to improve symptoms. They specify that the plan should be developed jointly with the individual and their family or significant others, and that it should establish specific measurable goals and objectives. And they also stipulate that it should include treatment modalities that are appropriate to the clinical needs of the individual. They also note, and I think this is really important, if the treatment plan implemented is not leading to measurable clinical improvements in the moderately severe symptoms and our behaviors that led to the admission to psychotherapy or to the program and a progression toward discharge from the present level of care, then there must be ongoing reassessment and modifications to the treatment plan that address specific barriers to achieving improvement when clinically indicated." So right here, they're saying they want for us to work closely with our clients to create treatment that's really catered to their individual needs. And if that treatment isn't working, what they're saying and how I hear this, if it's not working, we need to change it. If it's still not working, we need to stop it. We need to make our treatment planning procedures something that exists on a continuum They're happening consistently and constantly, and we'll talk about some of the research a little bit later on that supports this idea. I think it's important to explore these insurance-based level of care guidelines because so many clients may come to us using their insurance plans, and these level of care guidelines are important really for all of us to know because they help us establish medical necessity, and they're also an example of best practice through the eyes of that insurance company. Many of us also work through Medi-Cal, so I want to take a jaunt into a wonderful article that was written by one of the attorneys at CAMFT that includes basic training in Medi-Cal documentation. So specifically looking at the treatment planning and implementation piece, uh, the article says this, Because a client plan derives services to clients, the plan must contain specific, observable, quantifiable goals, as well as proposed types of interventions and proposed timeframes for the interventions. The client must have input in the provision of the intervention and was in agreement with the intervention. There should be no periods of care without an operative client recovery plan, with the exception of the intake period. When completing the plan, the treatment objectives should be based upon the client's diagnosis dysfunction condition. Diagnostic symptoms should reflect the predominant symptoms, consistent with the assessment data, and the con- and are contributory to the functional impairments for that client. Observable, measurable functional impairments should be listed and operationally defined. The impairment should be individually based and measurable. So for example, they say, Will reduce arguing and non compliance with adult directives from 12 times per week to 3 times per week for 4 consecutive weeks by teacher and parent report by XYZ date. Or another example is Will reduce suicidal ideations or gestures from 7 times per week to a goal of 0 times per week and sustain for 6 months as measured by self or caregiver report and provider observation to be achieved by XYZ date. So I know this. Data and this content is pretty heavy and pretty dense. But let me tell you what I hear when I look at this. Basically, Medi-Cal is saying to us, and this article is saying, we need to have a treatment plan that's really clearly written, and we need to involve clients in that plan. So once again, we're hearing from another provider set that we need to have a treatment plan that's commonly integrated and the clients are engaged and involved in that entire process. In addition to looking at some payer definitions of best practice with regard to treatment planning and client engagement, I also want to pull from the Practical Guide to Clinical Documentation by the Joint Commission. The Joint Commission is an accrediting body in the United States that accredits all different kinds of providers, including behavioral health programs, and I think their guide is really an excellent example of how we can implement different strategies in our treatment. So, according to the Joint Commission, the client should be involved in the development of the treatment plan. Participation can be accomplished in any number of ways, but active participation is critical. In some instances, the client sits in on the treatment planning session as an active participant. In other situations, the attending clinician may review the plan with the client prior to the formal treatment planning session or review it with the client after the proposed plan has been completed. Whatever the method, the client should be familiar with the goals and objectives and should understand why they were established, what they mean, and how they will be achieved. Active client participation is not only encouraged but required by the Joint Commission and some licensing bodies. So that paragraph, again, to me, tells me how important it is to have a client's involvement in the treatment plan and that they even require it. Additionally, the Joint Commission notes, Goals and objectives may be modified. Interventions may be increased, decreased, changed, or discontinued. Target dates for achievement may be altered. The treatment plan should be conceptualized as a continuous sequence of mini plans that result in incremental behavioral improvements from the time of entry to discharge or transfer. Revisions, additions, deletions, or modifications of a plan should not be considered undesirable consequences of a flawed process. More likely, treatment plan revisions demonstrate that the process is working as it should. So again, they say, revisions, additions, deletions, or modifications of a plan should not be considered undesirable consequences of a flawed process. More likely, treatment plan revisions demonstrate that the process is working as it should. I think this brings up such a great point. Our treatment plans really should not just be finished and completed and then signed, sealed, delivered, we're done with them. They should keep having modifications. They should be changed. We should delete things. We should add things. We should we should frequently update. All of those things basically indicate that we are awake at the wheel. We as providers are noticing like, hey, that thing we're doing, you don't seem to like it or maybe a client's giving us feedback that their symptoms are either staying the same or getting worse, not better. That's when we need to be modifying the treatment plan. This is constant. And what I also think is important about looking at the insurance expectations with treatment planning and the Joint Commission When we step back, we realize that these are all saying something that's pretty similar. There must be a reason why all of these different sources are requiring us to be actively engaged in treatment planning with our clients, and they all pretty much state that the clients have to be involved in this process, and that the treatment plan is continually being revisited and updated and revised. There must be something going on here. So why don't we take a look at some of the research that supports what these guides are saying? I want to share with you the results of something called Project Match. Project Match was an eight year, $33 million investigation that started in 1989, and it was financed by the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. It evaluated which types of alcohol use disorder treatment were most effective. They compared three very different clinical approaches that included motivational interviewing, 12-step, and cognitive behavioral therapy. It turned out after doing this exhaustive and expensive study that these individualized assessment-driven approaches didn't ultimately pan out and produce a better result than their compared models, and other studies have had similar results. In other words, these sparkly, empirically-based models didn't actually appear to make that much difference to treatment outcomes. Per Hans Biel's article titled Psychotherapy, the psychotherapy outcome research has shown that specific technique accounts for only about 1% of outcome variance in treatment, based on research by Assay and Lambert in 2008 and Wampold and Body in 2004. Various studies have revealed that the relationship between client and therapist is an important predictor of outcome. Bachelor and Horvath, 2008, Horvath and Betty, 2002, and Kruvnik et al. in 1996. However, although the therapeutic alliance is an important predictor of outcome, it only accounts for about 7% of outcome variation. Available data indicates that the particular approach used accounts for 1% of the outcome, and between 50 and 60% of the variance in outcome is attributable to the qualities of the alliance between the client and therapist. So, my takeaway from this I'm not knocking any of these empirically based models. They have been studied, they've been shown to be effective, they're fantastic. But when you step back and realize like, oh my goodness, that's only 1% of what actually makes our treatment effective, that's pretty profound. There are so many factors that come into play when it comes to the outcome of psychotherapy. How many resources does a client have? How motivated are they for treatment? Um, What's bringing them in? And how are they utilizing these different skills? skills and tools and also what's going on in the community or in their family around them to either support or discourage getting better. All of those factors are important. And as much as we have all these fantastic empirically based models, they actually don't make a huge difference to to therapy. What's much more significant is our alliance with the client. That alliance is based on our flexibility, on feedback, on being really responsive to what's happening with our clients in the room and also what's happening outside of the room and have we created treatment that can really be effective and applicable for them. I think that this research is really quite stunning because it allows us to actually really focus in on the quality of the alliance with our clients as well as focus in on the quality of treatment planning if our clients feel like we're taking them someplace that they don't understand or they don't agree with, chances are that's going to harm our alliance. But when we're working really closely with our clients, we're listening to them, we're asking for feedback, we're responsive to that feedback. This research starts to indicate that maybe our treatment outcomes get better. So let's take a look at some more research that also lends weight to this argument. With all of this in mind, let's talk about what works. According to John C. Norcross, involved in a meta-analysis of many different studies called Psychotherapy Relationships that Work Evidence-Based Responsiveness in 2011, he says, The research tells us it is not so much what therapists actually do that causes clients to improve, but how they do it. Therapists whose clients say they are accepting, understanding, and genuine consistently have better outcomes than therapists who are less so. A therapy relationship that involves therapist-client agreement about therapy goals, a collaborative therapeutic process, and a solid, genuinely caring relationship supports the best outcome. When the various treatment for various mental health conditions are reviewed, these different therapeutic and clinical techniques make a very limited contribution to the effectiveness of therapy. The clinical relational skills, alternatively, were found to be about 5 to 10 times more predictive of a positive therapeutic outcome than the therapist techniques. So again, I want to read that last sentence again. The clinical's relational skills Alternatively, we found to be about 5 to 10 times more predictive of a positive therapeutic outcome than the therapist's techniques. What a profound concept once again we see involved in this meta-study. It's a therapist who are accepting, understanding, and genuine, and their clients believe this to be true about them that produce better outcomes for their clients, and also the importance of agreed-upon therapy goals, that collaborative therapeutic relationship is critically important to positive outcomes in our therapeutic and counseling process. It's important also to consider what the American Psychological Association has to say about qualities and actions of effective therapists. The effective therapist provides a treatment plan that is consistent with the explanation provided to the client. Once the client accepts the explanation, the treatment plan will make sense and the f- client's compliance will be increased. So once again, we're seeing a theme here, right? That we have to be really clear about what our treatment entails, what our goals are, what the objectives are, and we need to have the involvement of our client's. So with this in mind, how do we help clients better evaluate whether or not they're getting better? We seek routine feedback, routine feedback. It's so simple. It doesn't matter what modality we're using. It doesn't matter if we have care that's highly based in one particular theoretical model, be that something like 12-step or smart recovery, or maybe it's cognitive behavioral therapy or ACT. We can all seek feedback from our clients, and then we can be responsive to that feedback in order to help them change and make positive differences in their lives. According to the Enhancing Outcome for Potential Treatment Failures Therapist Client Feedback and Clinical Support tools Study in 2007, they found consisting of data from 1,445 clients Results indicated that feedback to therapists reduced deterioration rates and improved outcome across clients, especially those predicted to be treatment failures. So not only did they do a study to see whether or not feedback really affected what we do as therapists or counselors and whether or not it's effective, they did a huge study with 1,400 people. And I think it's so critical to note, not only did it prevent people from dropping out of treatment prematurely, but it also improved the outcome. And so clients were getting better faster. Another takeaway I see from this is that it had a huge impact on the folks that were predicted to be treatment failures. So those are the individuals or the families that we come into treatment and we realize maybe they've been in treatment a lot. Maybe they have what appears to be treatment-resistant depressive disorder or substance use disorder. And even we as therapists are like, hmm, I don't know if we're going to have a positive outcome here. So in this study, clearly when we're walking into that situation, it's really important for us To seek feedback from clients and then integrate that feedback. We need to have routine feedback procedures so that we're pretty consistent with this because it's easy for us to kind of get on one track and forget to constantly check in. And how I recommend doing this is um, either through a formal procedure, like we'll talk about during this seminar, or an informal procedure where maybe you, you do an intervention and then say, hey, you know, that thing with a whiteboard, we've never done that before. How did that work for you? And if they say it didn't, it's like, okay, that's fine. You know, my job here is to serve you. And when I listen to what you need, then I can actually create something that maybe is going to be more helpful. So thank you so much for letting me know. And being really open about that with our clients helps reinforce the therapeutic alliance that we're not just the treatment provider with our fancy hats on and our fancy letters after our names, but that we're actively involved and in listening to them and we're wide awake at the wheel and listening to how to help them. There have been a number of researchers and professionals that have been involved in this concept of integrating client feedback as a means to improve outcomes of therapy and counseling. One of them who I want to talk about today is Dr. Scott Miller. Uh, He's a founder of the International Center for Clinical Excellence, which is an international consortium of clinicians, researchers, and educators who are dedicated to promoting excellence in behavioral health services. Dr. Miller conducts workshops and trainings in the U.S. Uh, Some of us may have had the pleasure of hearing him speak at conferences or other workshops. And he works with hundreds of different agencies and organizations, both in the public and private sector, to achieve superior results in behavioral health treatment. He developed a client-directed outcome-informed therapy model in collaboration with Barry Duncan. The pair published their findings back in 2000 with a book called The Heroic Client, A Revolutionary Way to Improve Effectiveness Through Client-Directed Outcome-Informed Therapy. Their model relies on two fundamental principles. These principles are, number one, a strong client-therapist bond, and number two, client feedback and input. We're going to talk today a little bit more about some of the research that Dr. Miller has done and his colleagues, but how we actually implement this information, they found that very small changes in our processes as therapists can create so much positivity in the therapeutic relationship and in the resulting outcome. Going back to the medical model and our application of this information, imagine doctors Knowing that they could make these little changes in how they're saying something or what they're doing, that would make us as patients more likely to adhere to treatment, to come back, to listen to them. And there are all these amazing strategies that we can do as clinicians to help improve our different methods and how our clients are receiving information, things like motivational interviewing or dialectical behavioral therapy. But these are just some strategies. What Dr. Miller and his colleagues are suggesting is really almost a slight paradigm shift in the way that we operate as clinicians. If we can create an environment where our clients feel comfortable, where they can feel our warmth and our genuine concern for what's going on with this client, when we ask for their feedback and we make changes to the way that we do things, they're going to get better faster. That's such a simple and profound concept, and I believe that it can be really implemented across model. So it doesn't matter whether you identify as a staunchly psychoanalytic therapist or whether you are diehard 12-step to the end. We can still do those things. All we need to do instead is just integrate the importance of a strong client-therapist bond and also client feedback and input. It's also important to take a look at the research regarding outcome predictions, taking information from Dr. Miller et al's using formal client feedback to improve retention and outcome, making ongoing real-time assessment feasible, a paper in 2006. They made a couple of really important and significant assertions. Research began using early improvement, specifically the client's subjective experience of meaningful change in the first few visits, to predict whether a given pairing of a client and therapist or treatment system would result in a successful outcome. So let me say that again. Researchers began using early improvement, specifically the client's subjective experience of meaningful change in the first few visits, to predict whether a given pairing of client and therapist or treatment system would result in a successful outcome. And they pulled this assertion from a number of different studies that they put together. And basically, what I hear when I read that is this If the patient sees a positive change in the first few visits, he, she, or they are more likely to have a successful treatment encounter. What a simple and important concept for us. It also tells us that as therapists, we have a really limited amount of time to work with a client and help them achieve change that's noticeable to them. This speaks to the importance of effective treatment planning. When we have treatment plans that are based on concrete behavioral measures, so we can encourage clients to basically reflect on the quality of their symptoms and whether or not they're getting better or worse, those people are more likely to stay in treatment. So let's step back and let's say that we have an individual who's been struggling with sleep quality. If we've helped them operationally define what insomnia is for them, is it trouble falling asleep? Is it trouble staying asleep? How many nights does it happen? What about nap during the day? When we've defined this, we can work with our clients in those first few visits to help them make positive changes. And if they actually are, are noticing that change, then they're more likely to stay in treatment and they're more likely to improve from our treatment. Additionally, Howard, Luger, Mailing, and Martinovich in 1993 found that an absence of early improvement in the client's subjective appraisal of personal well-being significantly decreased the chances of feeling better at the end of the therapeutic encounter. Similarly, in a study of more than 2,000 therapists and thousands of clients, Brown et al. in 1999 found that therapeutic relationship in which no improvement occurred by the third visit did not, on average, result in improvement over the entire course of treatment. This study further found that clients who got worse by the third visit were twice as likely to drop out of treatment than clients who reported making progress. In other words... If patients don't feel noticeably better early on in treatment, they're much less likely to ever report improving during the treatment episode, and they're much more likely to drop out of treatment. We could interpret this as a lot of pressure, but given the other research, I also see that this is an opportunity for us to really be responsive to the needs of our clients, to hear what's going on with them, and to very quickly respond to changes in treatment. So if we recommended some self-care activity early on, or we asked them to do a worksheet or go to a certain group and they were really not buying it, then we need to come up with something different. We need to change our treatment plan and alter how we're doing things. Because if we don't, that person is either going to stay in treatment and not necessarily get better, or they're just going to drop out. So, for us, this is pretty important information for us to have so that we can create treatment that's maximally responsive and effective. How about the importance of the therapeutic alliance on the outcome of treatment? How important is it that our clients really think that we genuinely like being around them, that we enjoy talking with them, and that we're genuinely concerned about them? Well, over 1,000 research findings by Orinsky, Ronstad, and Walitsky in 2004 demonstrated that a positive alliance is one of the best predictors of outcome. Again, how simple. We just need to be a genuine person in the room. We need to nod, we need to be responsive, we need to perhaps self disclose if it's clinically appropriate and not contraindicated. We need to just be real and try to form real connections with these people in a way that's supportive of their recovery. I think that's such a beautiful concept when we step back that a few people sitting in a room showing genuine care for each other creates healing. So simple and so beautiful. And also, when therapists acquire information about clients' lack of progress, they tend to respond with significant adjustments to improve the outcomes for these clients. This is from a study in 2009. So again, when we acquire information about clients' lack of progress, we tend to respond by changing therapy, and that improves the outcome. Once again, we see the importance of seeking regular feedback and then actually responding to it. It's not enough to be like, how did that work for you? And they say it didn't, and we're like, too bad, we're going to do it again. We have to find treatment that's creative and that is flexible, that allows for us to perhaps even change models if we need to, or just change our approach and how we're delivering information or what we're trying to achieve. When we do this, our clients are much more likely to have a positive outcome in treatment. Again, if we look back at the medical model, or at any model for that matter. If I'm going to go to somebody and I'm going to spend my time and I'm going to pay for a service, I had best get what I came looking at, looking for. So what is that? In this case, it's a reduction in symptoms. It's an improvement in relationships. It's a improvement in overall life satisfaction, any number of different things. Those would be your overarching treatment goals. But how we get there, our basic interventions that we're using, we can change those. And when we do change those based on feedback, and guidance from our clients, we see that clients get better faster. High five, right? In addition to the research findings that support the importance of routine feedback, there are also some other benefits. And of course, I really like these benefits um, because I'm a big old fan of documentation and integrated treatment planning. Uh, When we are receiving routine feedback from our clients, it takes the guesswork out of treatment planning. It doesn't mean that we're sitting there at the office late one night trying to fill out some paperwork and reflecting on whether or not we actually think the client's depression depression is improving. It means we actually ask them and we use these behavioral measures, these concrete objectives and problem areas to assess the client's improvement. It takes out the guesswork. It makes it really concrete for us because they've told us. And there may be some situations where clients might not be entirely forthcoming about that, but that's hopefully something that we can work through in the therapeutic alliance. Assuming that what the feedback we get is accurate and that it's reflective of the client's actual experience, then we can cater treatment to them. We don't have to guess anymore whether something is effective. It also becomes part of the client record, so I think this is one of my um, one of my favorite parts again because I love clinical documentation. Um, when something becomes part of the client record, that satisfies a lot of different accrediting bodies. If you work with managed care, it's really important that your charts are individualized and they show that the client's feedback is being integrated. The more that we can show that we are again wide awake at the wheel and. Responding to the needs of our clients, we basically show that we are being a competent and prudent therapist. Imagine a doctor that had a treatment plan that's not working, and they keep prescribing the same behavior change or medication, and week after week after week, it doesn't make any difference And what if the doctor just simply assumes that either it is working and it may eventually work or that the client isn't telling the truth about it or that maybe the doctor's opinion is more valuable than the client's opinion. This research is all kind of turning that concept on its head. That doctor would need to seek feedback from the client and say, hey, we tried this new medication. Is it working for you? How are the side effects? And then that feedback is unintegrated. If it's not working, change it. If it's still not working, then we need to stop it. And also, routine feedback is another way for us to capture clues that we might have otherwise missed. So what are some potential safety or risk factors? What are some other pieces of treatment that maybe we are overlooking but that are influencing this client. When we ask for feedback, like let's say we're really focused on the client's uh, functional impairment related to their employment. So we're spending a lot of time about how to have that assertive conversation with their bosses. And we're also talking about self-care and setting appropriate boundaries and maybe not checking the email at night. We're doing all these things, but it turns out that what's actually bothering that client is a big fight that they had with their sister. We're way off base. Our treatment plan might need to be changed. Our problem areas should be redefined. But when we can be really responsive to the needs of that client, again, our treatment's going to go up, and it's a way for us to capture more information when we're seeking active feedback. Hey, we've been spending a lot of time in the last few sessions talking about work. Is that what you want to talk about today? That feedback helps us shape the direction of treatment. Before we move out of the research portion of today's podcast, I want to introduce some pretty new research via an addition to this podcast And hopes that it also sheds a little bit more light on the importance of treatment planning and what some newer research is saying in terms of the effectiveness of different therapeutic methods. So there was a study that was released in January of 2018 called the Treatment Planning of Experienced Counselors, a Qualitative Examination. That was by Gutierrez, Fox, Jones, and Fallon, and that comes out of the Journal of Counseling and Development. And this was a small study. It only involved nine clinicians where basically the researchers were evaluating the different methods that these various experienced clinicians were using in order to treatment plan with their clients. So they sought a lot of feedback from these clinicians about what they're doing and why they're doing it. They wanted to understand kind of the therapeutic treatment planning process. And then they kind of looked at all of that data and evaluated, you know, does a client seem to be getting better? Does treatment planning seem to be effective? And one of the things that they found that I think is really interesting, there are so many different treatment planning models out there, and they're so heavily dependent upon your clinical perspective. So how uh, someone who's psychodynamically oriented versus how someone is cognitive behavioral therapy oriented would be very different in their treatment planning strategies. So in this case, all of these counselors and therapists were coming from really different walks of life and had different belief systems about what basically propels change. How do we help clients get better? And at the end of their study, they started evaluating some of the research about treatment planning and found that there was something consistent that came out of their their small study here, this research. And it pointed to the work of two uh, different studies previously done, or two different models, if you will, one of them being Wampold and Email's contextual model from 2015, and the other one being Mark's replan model from 2012. So I want to spend a couple minutes talking about these two different treatment planning models and why they're important and why they're relevant, um, because it's, it's interesting stuff. And I think, again, as counselors and therapists, we really grow when we start to reflect on why we're doing what we're doing and start to recognize that really, in a lot of ways, therapy is like cooking. There is some kind of a recipe, and we alter that recipe based on our client's presentation, based on ourselves and our theoretical orientation, based on the situation, and that just as a cook would be or a chef or even maybe a baker, where there are very specific uh, measurements and ratios that come into play, we really need to be paying attention to what ingredients we're putting in. So let's start by taking, taking a look at WAMPoet and Emails 2015 contextual model. So this model to really boil it down and, uh, and break it down into some separate sections really believes that there are essentially three things that go into therapy and that the first is the relationship. That's the relationship between the therapist and the client or patient and that it's influenced heavily by social processes. So this could have a lot to do really with empathy and with attachment. Again, it depends on your perspective about these different things and your theoretical orientation, Might what words you might use to use this. But fundamentally, they say what's really important is number one, the real relationship. So moving past that, um, they also were looking at expectations. So what are the client's expectations about treatment? Has that person been in treatment before? Was it a positive or negative outcome? And what are their general beliefs or socially supported thoughts about therapy? Is it something that they're begrudgingly doing because a family member or a boss or somebody told them they had to? Or is it something that they're, in, they're interested in doing on their own regardless of outside influences or some combination thereof? So we look at, again, first the relationship and um, how attached that person is to the therapist in the sense that we have perhaps a client that has been struggling with infidelity and they're talking about it in their individual therapy. Do they believe that that therapist or counselor can approach them with empathy and can provide a safe container for them to tolerate some really unpleasant themes or difficult ideas that might otherwise get them judged outside of therapy. And then the second pathway is through the, ther- or, excuse me, the client's expectations. So what does that person believe about their own self-efficacy, about the ability to influence change? How do they feel about therapy? Did it work last time? If it didn't work last time or a series of other times, has that just made them feel like this whole thing is a sham? And then the third that they were looking at um, they believe that the third element comes down to what they call specific ingredients. So these are the kind of client and therapist specific factors. So this might come down to what treatment modality you're using, whether it's motivational interviewing or dialectic behavior dialectical behavior therapy. And from there, we see this combination of these three different factors and that the context basically matters. So how is the relationship? How are the expectations? And then what specific ingredients are being used? So this study from 2018, they saw that there were a lot of characteristics coming out of these nine counselors and therapists when they sought feedback. And these characteristics in treatment planning kind of matched what Wampold and Emil were saying in, in their in their postulations in 2015. Um, So then from that, one of the other pieces that has to do more with kind of the ingredients um, comes out of a book that's called Learning the Art of Helping, Building Blocks and Techniques from Mark E. Young, and it's called the Replan Model. And this model is pretty graspable, if you will. I think I might have just invented a word. But it's something that therapists and counselors might be able to connect to because it's pretty simple. So... Um, in Mark's concept, the Replan model is a method that looks at six different therapeutic factors, and those factors include R for relationship, um, E for enhancing efficacy and self-esteem, P for practicing new behaviors, L for lowering and raising emotional arousal, A for activating expectations, hope, and motivation, and N providing new learning experiences. So, without going really deep into this, and I recommend the book um, by Mr. Young, but this whole concept of replan basically makes you stop as a therapist or counselor and evaluate those separate ingredients. Again, hearkening back to this study at the beginning of 2018 and saying, okay, therapists are doing very specific things, and it turns out that they do kind of have some, some ingredients that they're pretty consistently using. So, again, those ingredients are the relationship enhancing efficacy and self-esteem, practicing new behaviors, lowering and raising emotional arousal, activating expectations, hope and motivation, and providing new learning experiences. So for me, when I think about this, I realize that really that that is the list of what I'm doing in therapy rather often. I'm focusing on how our relationship is, but I'm also encouraging that person's self-efficacy. I'm encouraging them to help um, or to practice new behaviors, trying to identify what might be standing in the way of that in their change. I'm going to help them lower their emotional arousal. I also want to talk about their hopes and their dreams and their motivation to help them really dig into treatment. I also want to give them new learning experiences. So they may have had some different behaviors that were previously really difficult for them to overcome. And they may have unfortunately been reinforced in negative thoughts beliefs or behaviors that have contributed to their difficulties now. So again, just wanted to share kind of an update to this podcast about this research from 2018, relating back to Young's replan and Wampold and Namel's contextual model. So you have an opportunity to further kind of conceptualize your treatment planning process. And I encourage you, if you're interested in any of these resources, to look into them and see if it's something that kind of jives with what you do. Uh, because, again, the work that you do is so important and so meaningful for these clients and patients. Now that we've reviewed some of the research and also talked about how this research is really applicable to us as therapists and counselors, now we have to do the kind of difficult thing of actually applying it. How do we integrate this into our treatment? So I want to share a couple of different methods with you, and I also want to point out these methods are not the only way to do this. These are some options that are available to us and they're worth consideration, but you may find a certain way that works better for you. So one of these methods is through the Session Rating Scale by Johnson, Miller, and Duncan. And basically, this is a very simple client feedback scale that involves four domains, the Therapeutic Alliance, Goals and Topics, the Approach or the Method, and the client's overall experience. So one of the great things about this form is It's free for personal use. Dr. Miller and his colleagues thought it was important to make this available to us to use, and they encourage us to use it. Organizations and businesses that are going to use this format are encouraged to purchase a copy. Um, This resource is widely available online. You can go to a number of different websites and download it, and it's very simple and brief. So basically, this is a form that we would use at the end of session that the client basically fills out on a scale whether we were way off the mark in our methods, or whether we were nailing it, basically. So again, this scale allows clients to evaluate the therapeutic relationship, the goals and the topics, the approach or method, and the overall experience. This, again, is critically important to us because when we get feedback, we're more likely to respond to that feedback. So if we have really missed the mark with the approach, if they hated that thing that we did with the whiteboard, then we should probably know that. And this is a way that a client can tell us this, perhaps without feeling uncomfortable because they're just writing it onto a form or putting an X on a line. So then we can check in and be like, hey, I noticed that approach or method, you scored uh, you scored our session pretty low. Tell me what's going on. I want to see what I can do differently in order to get that that, that scale higher, um, additionally, this isn't something that you necessarily need to do on a paper form. Dr. Milner's colleagues, while they have this form, they also have uh, basically a graph that you can use to basically monitor what the client's improvement is on these different domains. But this isn't the only way to do this. So you can ask a client at the end of session, hey, just checking in. Like, How did you feel about us? Like, Did you feel like I was listening to you and I understood what you were going through. Was there anything I could have done better or differently? And what did you think about our goals? Like we talked about it. We talked a lot about your work. We also talked about that thing that happened at the birthday party. Was that on point or or maybe how could we have changed that to make it better for you? And also asking about the approach or method and the overall experience. These are all opportunities for us to cater our treatment specifically to the needs of that patient. And when we check in with them like this at the end of every session, then we can really create that treatment plan that's active and very flexible. In addition to the Session Rating Scale, there's something called the Outcome Rating Scale by Miller and Duncan. And this is also a simple and brief four-question scale that allows us to basically assess our clients' well-being. It encourages them to rate how they're doing individually, interpersonally, socially, and overall. It's also free for personal use and it's widely available online. These domains are pretty fundamental to what we do as therapists and counselors. We are often looking at how they're doing individually, what's going on interpersonally for them, what's happening in their social world, and how are they feeling overall. So again, I find this really important because it helps us kind of guide where we're going in session. I had one session where we had spent a lot of time previously talking about my client's work life. And um, it was at the very end of the session that she shared that she'd had this huge fight with her sister and she really wanted to talk about it. And we only had a couple minutes left. And of course, there, there was some therapeutic significance to her bringing it up at the end of session, but it was also very telling for me. That looking back on that session, I probably could have done a better job asking her, like, hey, how are you doing individually? Tell me what's going on in your world. What's looming really large? And because we had been so focused on a treatment plan around her work, there was this other significant thing in the room that really should have and maybe could have dictated my treatment differently. So lesson learned things like the outcome rating scale help us use our clients as a guide. It helps us be a little bit more flexible and responsive to what's going on with our clients in the room that particular day. And again, we don't necessarily have to whip out this form and hand the client a pen and a clipboard and say, hey, fill this out. We can start the session by saying, I'm gonna check in with you. So I want to quickly assess what's going on in these different realms. So how are you doing individually, like scale of one to 10? Tell me how you're doing interpersonally. How are things going at work? How are you getting along with your family members? And socially, have you been getting out more? Because I know sometimes you've been having trouble with that. Where are you at? And overall, how would you say you're doing? We don't have to necessarily do this in this really regimented way, it can be an informal process. But again, when we get this feedback, most therapists make positive changes. So let's keep asking for that feedback in lots of different ways. Now that I've said the word feedback probably like 80 times this presentation, you might be wondering, is that weird to keep asking for feedback? Like, does it make clients awkward or uncomfortable when we're always like, how am I doing? How about now? How am I doing now? Well, thank goodness somebody studied it. Rise, Ericsson, Grimstad, and Stein in 2012 found... Six weeks after starting treatment, there were no effects on alliance and satisfaction from using two brief feedback scales. So one could assume that if it was super awkward for clients to be giving us this feedback about our alliance and our satisfaction of treatment, it would probably be having an impact on the alliance. I think this is also really important for us to remember. It might feel kind of awkward when we first start doing it, or maybe as we're continually doing it, but It's such a simple thing that we can do in treatment in order to improve the outcomes, and it doesn't have a negative effect on the therapeutic alliance. It exists separate from that. So thumbs up. It's in the right direction. Let's do it. In addition to these client feedback scales and how valuable they are for us as clinicians on influencing outcomes, I also want to point out how accrediting bodies like the Joint Commission are more and more asking providers for outcome measures. In fact, the Joint Commission has recently revised a standard in their care, treatment, and services chapter, so the organizations will be required to assess outcome through the use of a standardized tool or instrument. Results of these assessments would then be used to inform goals and objectives identified in the care plan and treatment and services as needed, and they evaluate the outcome of care, treatment, and the services provided to the population served. So think about that session rating scale and the outcome rating scale. Those are really easy things that we can be doing to assess the quality of our clients' treatment. Are they getting better? Are they not? Are we shifting treatment in order to respond to a lack of improvement or stagnation? And this measurement-based care Uh, recently has become pretty high profile because the Joint Commission believes that this is one of the most important things that we can do as providers. Again, the research supports this requirement. So how about we start influencing and implementing this in a really simple way in our sessions. Now let's bring all of these different puzzle pieces together. In order for us to be effective we must be clinically flexible and able to really hear what's working or not working for our clients and patients. We need to frequently evaluate the therapeutic alliance and the client symptoms, and we need to be transparent about the treatment plan. Like I said earlier, if it's not working, we need to change it. If it's still not working, then we stop it. All of these pieces fit together in a really beautiful puzzle that's going to help our clients heal. It's going to help support them in creating positive changes in their lives. They create more meaningful worlds for them. We're in this field because we want to be involved in that process. So these little changes that we talked about today are so easy to implement, and they can really produce a really neat outcome for us as providers. My general goal with these e-learnings is to help you work smarter, not harder. We spend so much time on administrative things that it's easy for us to feel like that dominates the care that we're providing. Let's make those administrative pieces easier and more simplistic so that we can really focus on what's important, working with our clients. What I like about all the research we talked about today is that it all points in one very clear, cohesive direction. We need to focus on treatment planning, and we need to be really responsive to our clients and ask for feedback. Those are such simple things for us to be doing, and that's a way for us to save time and to work smarter and not harder. Thank you for attending today, and please check out my other e-learning courses to help you simplify and improve the efficiency and effectiveness of your clinical documentation practices. Thank you, and take care.